Amen. Well, good morning, church. Thank you, Trevor, for that. Uh, well, this morning, it is my privilege and honor to be preaching through Psalm 27. If you're wondering what happened to Psalm 25, um, we, we can count, I assure you. Uh, one of uh, the uh, staff members over at the North Campus at GCF will be here next week preaching on Psalm 25. So that's why we skipped over it, if you're wondering. Uh, but this morning, we'll find ourselves here in Psalm 27. So please, if you're able and willing, can you please stand this morning for the reading of God's word? Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh and my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong. And let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. This is God's word for us this morning. Please be seated. Please pray with me. Father, um, we just thank you. God, with, with hearts full of gratitude for your word, we thank you that we can sit under the teaching of it this morning. God, I thank you for the help you provided me in preparing for this, this message of great confidence. Lord, we pray that you would be magnified and glorified through the preaching of the word that you have left us for this very purpose. Help us to learn about you. Help us to apply what we learn about you to our lives. And God, would you sanctify us through understanding your word. Lord, we thank you for revealing yourself to us. What a blessing that is this morning. God, help me to speak clearly, and I pray for my brothers and sisters here in this room this morning that you would give them ears to hear what you want, and Lord, that they would not resist the Holy Spirit this morning and what you are trying to speak to them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, if you're driving through downtown Spokane, heading westbound down 2nd Avenue, you're likely to see the giant American Jesus mural that's painted on the side of the building. And this mural here, it depicts a pixelated face of what is supposed to be 
Jesus and is intentionally left to be abstract so that whoever sees it can define it as whatever they see it as. Whatever you see is what it is, is what the artist replied when asked, what is this supposed to be? Well, after it was painted, a lot of uh, mixed messages were received on social media over what it's supposed to convey. People either have no clue what this is or they have a best guess, but at the end of the day, they're left with no confidence of really, you know, knowing what it is. Well, when I look at it, my mind goes to Matthew 16, when Jesus asked Peter, who are the crowds saying that I am? What are they saying about me out there? And he says, well, some say you're Elijah, some say that you're John the Baptist, and others are saying that you're just a prophet of old who's come back to life. And then what does Jesus do? He looks at Peter and he says, well, Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter replies, well, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. Like this mural, there's so many differing opinions on who Jesus is. And back then it was simply based on what lens people decided to see Jesus through. Like who they thought Jesus was, right? And this was solely based on a best guess. So for many, the thought of Jesus was like this painting, abstract. Well, in the wake of so many differing answers to the question, who is Jesus, there was and is a right answer, right? And only one right answer. And Peter nailed it. He got it right. So another question then becomes, how could Peter be so confident in his answer? Well, there can be some very complex theological reasonings behind this. But a simple explanation is simply that Peter knew Jesus. He knew who Jesus was. Right? He, he walked with Jesus, and he talked with Jesus. He prayed with Jesus. He ate meals with Jesus. He listened to Jesus. He watched Jesus interact with people. He learned all about Jesus. This is how he could confidently say, well, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I know this because I know you. And this then has massive implications in the way Peter should live, Right? I mean, if Peter can confidently know that this is who Jesus is, then he can confidently trust that he is in good hands. Well, likewise, Psalm 27 here is a psalm of courageous confidence as we see David lamenting over his circumstances, but all the while confident in knowing that the Lord's got him. The Lord's watching over him. I remember preaching last year on the Psalms, and I called David a confident lamenter, that David can, you know, express emotion, negative emotion in light of bad circumstances, and he should be allowed to do that. But yet the undertow of his heart should be at peace, right? Ultimately being confident that the Lord is in control still and he can be trusted. But the main point that I want to express this morning is that courageous confidence in the Lord, it can't happen. It can't take place if you don't know the person that you're supposed to take confidence in. And this is our main takeaway this morning, church, that Christian confidence comes from knowing God. Christian confidence comes from knowing God. See, David had great confidence in the Lord because he knew God well and he trusted that he was well known by God. See, David zealously pursued the Lord. He went after the Lord hard. He consistently studied and meditated on his word. And as David did, 
their relationship grew and David's life started changing. He became more and more dependent and confident in the Lord. Consider some of the words written in Psalm 119. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. For I trust in your word and take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth for my hope is in your rules. Give me understanding according to your word. Deliver me according to your word. My tongue will sing of your word. And then we see in verse four of our psalm this morning that David's one desire is just to be with the Lord and gaze upon his beauty. Verse four of Psalm 27, one thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Christian confidence comes from knowing God. But therein lies the rub, right? We seem to have a Christian confidence crisis today because many live and act as if they don't know who Jesus is. And I would dare argue it's because they're not studying their Bibles. And while cutting out the very source that's supposed to fuel their confidence, they're instead riddled, enslaved to fears and anxieties over things like politics, world health, war, the economy, employment, and so many of the other fun things that we get to live with in this world. Well, a 2021 poll showed that 69% of Americans identify with the Christian religion. So this would then mean that 69% of Americans claim that they know Christ. But does it seem that way? And if you peel back what's defined as a Christian in these surveys, you learn that it includes a whole hodgepodge of different religions, including Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, devout Catholics. So sure, these religions profess to know Christ, but in reality, they see him as clearly as this American Jesus mural, right? A whatever you see is what he is depiction of Jesus, pixelated, confusing. So what confidence is there in a pixelated understanding of Christ? Saints, if what you know and understand about Jesus today is as pixelated and fuzzy as this image, then you have no hope or confidence that you can stand on. How do you hope and trust in someone you clearly don't know? What's, where's their hope and confidence if every day you wake up wondering if the Lord hates you or is upset with you? And where's their hope and confidence in, you know, wondering if he's even listening to you when you pray? And where's their hope and confidence if you're not even sure if he's involved in what's going on in the world or that he even cares? See, as a born-again Christian, the Bible says that you have been given the Holy Spirit and he dwells inside of you. This is part of the Holy Spirit's job is to introduce you to, to Christ, to get you to know Christ. This means that you have been given access. You've been given the keys to being able to intimately know the creator of the universe. Doesn't that sound wonderful? But then with everything that fights for our attention today, that beautiful news starts to lose its luster as we get distracted with other stuff. And then what ends up happening is our confidence shifts, right, to that in Jesus where it's supposed to be, to confidence in ourself. 
right? We, 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 we trust in our money, our work, our physical strength, our own wisdom, maybe our spouse, a sitting president. Now, surely confidence in of itself is not a bad thing. And as humans, we need confidence. It's a great quality to have. And Christians especially should be known as people with great confidence. But the Bible is very clear on exactly what our confidence should be placed in. Philippians 3.3 says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Psalm 118, 8 through 9 says, It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. So if you feel that lately your confidence and hope in the Lord has been paper thin, or he's not the first person that you've been running to, then it's probably because you're not seeing him clearly. And the only way to regain focus, to get a clear picture, is through knowing him in his word. Christian confidence comes from knowing God. So let's look at Psalm 27 and look at the connection we see between David's confidence and what he knows about the Lord. First, in verse 1, we could see that a confident Christian knows their God. This is our first point this morning. A confident Christian knows their God. Now, this first point probably seems a little strange, right? Because it's like I'm stating the obvious. Like, don't you have to know Christ in order to become a Christian? Isn't that the point? You have to accept and acknowledge Christ. But there's a distinction that must be made when I talk about this word know, just as it is in the Bible. See, this word know implies a special bond, an intimate relationship where you understand and you fully know somebody. It's kind of like how we use the word friend today. I think the word friend is, is, is overused. It's watered down. We'll, we'll mention anybody we know as, as a friend when really we should probably be saying acquaintance. But that's a hard word to say, so I just stick with friend. It's a lot easier until they steal my wallet. See, a friend of yours should be someone that you, you trust, right? A friend is someone you love. A friend is someone you deeply care for. There's, there's intimate qualifiers there that make up what a friend is. And the same goes for what I mean by a Christian should know their God. It's not just a simple acknowledgement of God as if he's your acquaintance. The Bible says that even the demons see God in this way. No, but a Christian should intimately know their God, understand his attributes, his character through what the Bible reveals about him. So we look at the scriptures to learn about God. And God gladly agrees to meet us there. That's the beautiful thing of this. He does not shy away from revealing his holy character to us. He wants to be known. Exodus 34, 5 through 7 is a great example of this as he testifies to who he is to Moses. Exodus 34, 5 through 7. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth 
generation. So Christian confidence comes when you know God, and the best way to do that is through learning what he reveals about himself through his word. And this is why we have the Bible, right? I love what R.C. Sproul says. He says, it's not enough to read the Bible. We have to study the Bible. And I think this is where we can get into that trap of, okay, I read my Bible today. I was a good Christian. Like, it's the magic, right? I read it, and so now it's in me, and I'm good to go until tomorrow. But what's the point if you don't know what you're reading? And I want to address all you kids and teenagers in the room right now. This is exactly why, as annoying as it may seem, your parents are constantly wanting you to be in the Word. Why the leaders here at your church want you to be in the Word. We want you going through catechisms. This is why you're, every Christmas from Grandma and Grandpa, you get a Bible. <laughs> we want you to know your Lord. You see, your confidence has to be in God himself. It can't be in your parents, in their faith, because one day you're not going to be living with your parents. So teenagers and kids, do you know the Lord through what he says in his word? Do you know him well? Well, David knew the Lord, and we see this in verse 1. As he begins this psalm with three descriptive words, the Lord is. The Lord is. Look with me at verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Well, here David declares these three words that describes the Lord and fuels his confidence. And notice these aren't characteristics that David's just making up. He's not just throwing these random things out there. No, these are truths that he knows to be grounded in what the Lord has revealed to him. The Lord is my light. The Lord is my salvation. Both of these words signify redemption. See, David knows that the Lord himself is a redeemer. And more specifically, the Lord is not just a means to salvation. The Lord is salvation. He is salvation. Isn't it fascinating that the very words, the Hebrew words that make up the name Jesus, literally mean redeemer. David then declares that the Lord is a stronghold. It's a powerful word. It's great confidence that the Lord has not only redeemed David in the past sense, but is going to see it through. That now he holds David. He carries him. The Lord is a permanent refuge, past, present, and future. And church, these same truths apply to you this morning. That the Lord is your light. He is your salvation. He is your stronghold. But do you believe it? Who do you say Jesus is? And are you able to take confidence in that this morning? As I was studying for the sermon, I was like, man, it would be a good exercise to just have a, a piece of paper in your Bible that just says the Lord is blank. And as you go through and God reveals more of his character, just fill in those blanks. Wouldn't it be wonderful to have just pages of all these beautiful truths you learn about the Lord that you can revisit from time to time. The Lord is. See, Jesus is so much more than just a ticket punch to get you to heaven. And David clearly takes confidence in his Lord to the point where he can boldly declare, I shall not fear, even if he's facing great adversity. And oftentimes when we face adversity, wise counsel says that we should talk to ourselves instead of listen to ourselves, right? Meaning we shouldn't, listen to what our emotions are telling us in that moment that are freaking out, but we should 
tell us, we should talk to ourselves what God's word says about the situation. And this is exactly what David is doing here in verse 1. But this can only be done, church, if you know what God's word says. Then you can confidently live it out. And this is our next point. Point two, a confident Christian lives out their theology. A confident Christian lives out their theology. Well, it's estimated that an uh, Olympic athletes can spend up to four to eight years training to make it to the Olympics. And this training can consist of 20 to 25 hours of strenuous working out, dieting uh, each week. So imagine you're sweeping your porch one day, right? You're sweeping, you're sweeping, and you're like, you know what? I want to become an Olympic curler. I just love sweeping. <laughs> and I, I'm pretty good. And I can make it to the Olympics with my sweeping skills. So you're sweeping, and you're like, I'm going to plan out a training schedule. Starting tomorrow, now you have to train three to four hours every day for the next eight years of your life. So you do this, and let's say four years later down the road, halfway through, you realize, you know, curling is kind of a dumb sport <laughs> and probably shouldn't even be a sport at all. So <laughs> sorry if you guys love curling. Is that a Canadian thing? Is anyone? So you, 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 you give up. You're like, I'm done curling, right? So now you have all this curling knowledge. You've studied the art and sport of curling. You've practiced for four years, and it's all in your brain but is never able to be put to its intended use. What good is that? Well, likewise, God has an intended purpose for Christians when we read the word. See, reading our Bibles is not just some hobby that we do, you know, when, when we have time to do it. It's not a leisurely activity. He didn't just leave us the Bible to swell up our brains. He gives us the word so that it would change us. He gives us his word so we will grow, we will apply, we will act on what we're learning. See, biblical truth is supposed to flow from your head down to your heart, and then where? Out through your, your hands, right? This is where you apply theology. What you learn about God, you now apply it to your life. So for David, we see what he knows about his God by way of courageous confidence. In verses 2 through 3 here, he describes the landscape of what he's facing. And then we see him put into action what he knows to be true. Verses 2 through 3. Here's the landscape David paints. When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. So here we get a glimpse of David's situation. It's ugly. There's enemies encamping against him. He's, he's in war. But yet he remains confident as he speaks truth to himself of what he knows about the Lord. So look for the three instances of the phrase, he will here in verse 5. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. So here David proclaims what he knows to be true about the Lord's character, right? And he doesn't, doesn't just sit hopeless with these, these truths idle in his mind. No, he responds. He responds with action. Notice the instances of I will in verse 6. So he just gets done talking about um, the Lord, what he's going to do. Now let's look at verse 6. And now, 
My head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. So David's saying, here I am in a huge heaping pile of adversity, a big scary mess, but here's what I know to be true about the Lord in the midst of it. Therefore, I will respond in great confidence, and I will not fear. Beloved, if you don't know what the Bible says about God, then you, you don't have anything to apply in the face of adversity. It's like having a, a gun with no ammunition, right? If you feel that often you're drowning in your fears and your anxieties, that they're consuming you, then maybe it's time to get back into God's word. See, there's so much that we can learn from the word, but it's not meant to sit idle in our minds. It's supposed to change the way that you live. It's supposed to change you and, and change the way you react when the world does what the world does. <laughs> it's an interesting thought to consider, isn't it, that the next time you read your Bible, the next time that you're studying your Bibles, that not only are you getting to know the Lord better, right? Not only are you just learning, but like a future Olympian, you're training with purpose. You're training to grow as a Christian, to complete the race while not stumbling over adversity when it comes your way. So a confident Christian knows their Lord. A confident Christian lives out their theology. And our third point is a confident Christian prays their theology. A confident Christian prays their theology. It's often said that you can tell the health of a Christian by hearing them pray, right? The way someone prays. And next we see David's confidence displayed in the way he prays. And this kind of shifts. He shifts from declaring confidence in the Lord to this prayer of supplication. So let's read verses 7 through 12. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen up against me. And they breathe out violence. Well, earlier I mentioned of how when you face adversity, you should speak God's truths to yourself. Well, likely when you face God in prayer, you should speak God's truths back to God. I love what Spurgeon says about this in regards to prayer. He says, if we would have the Lord hear our voice, if we want the Lord to hear our voice in prayer, we must be careful to respond to his voice. The true heart should echo the will of God as the rocks among the Alps repeat in sweetest music the notes of the peasant's horn. See, there's a great book out there called Praying the Bible, uh, written by Donald Whitney. And in it, he makes a case that, that Christians know that they should be praying, right? Christians, we, we know we should be praying, but they often don't know how to pray or what to be praying for. And this then results in kind of a dull prayer life. They, they look at prayer as rote or just boring. Well, he tells this cute little story about a little girl whose parents would tuck her in every night and they would say this bedtime prayer. You may know this. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, 
I pray the Lord my soul to take. I always thought that prayer was creepy. Ever since Metallica used it in the song, it just ruined it for me. <laughs> Sorry. That was pre-Christian Dave. Well, one night this little girl thinks to herself, she goes, you know, why does God need to hear me say this again? I mean, we say it every night. So for efficiency's sake, which I can appreciate, she recorded herself reciting this prayer, and then she would just play the recording every night before bed. <laughs> and this probably isn't too far off from how we can feel about prayer, right? It's either dull or boring, or we think that prayer is just simply asking God for things, whatever we want. As A.W. Tozer warned, prayer among evangelical Christians is always in danger of degenerating into a glorified gold rush. So while things like supplication and praying for others, we should be praying for those things. Those are good things to be praying for. It's important to keep in view that prayer is ultimately about worship. We pray to worship God. The sole purpose of prayer is a means to worship, recognizing God for who he is, what he has done, and what he will do. And this is why praying the Bible is such a great discipline for Christians to adopt. Well, notice in verse 8, David is using God's very own words in his prayer. I'm starting with verse 7. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Isn't it beautiful that David's heart responds to God? It's his heart that responds to him. I love that. But this is David taking God at his word. He's essentially praying, Lord, you have said in your word that you want us to seek your face. You have said this, so here I am in obedience to your will. So as a result, make good on your promises and do not cast me away. Well, the mood between the first half of the psalm that we went through and this, this second half where David's praying, it, it has such a drastic shift that some scholars believe it was actually misplaced. <laughs> that, that verses 7 through 12 are in the wrong psalm. But I don't think this is the case. You see, I see this prayer continue to support and display the confidence that David has based on what he knows in the Lord. You know that feeling of, of loving someone so much that you just want to tell them over and over, don't leave me. Please don't leave me. Promise me. Please, please promise me you'll be with me forever. Well, that request doesn't come from a heart that distrusts the other person, right? As if they're not sure when they wake up in the morning if they're still going to be there. No, it's the, it's the exact opposite. That type of desire, that ask, comes from a heart that's so happy and overjoyed that it can't imagine life without them. Right? It's, it's a heart that's so fully satisfied that it wants nothing more or nothing less. It wants exactly what it currently has in that moment. And I believe that's what David's sentiment is in this prayer towards God when he says this. I'm so satisfied with you, Lord, that I don't want anything to change. Now, verse 10 does seem a bit out of place as it randomly throws out a personal indictment against David's parents. So we're talking about David's adversaries, they want to eat his flesh and all this crazy stuff, and he's at war, and then all of a sudden, randomly, he's like, now just yelling at his parents. But when we understand the poetic nature of the Psalms and in the context of this, it further supports the confidence that David has in his Lord. Let's look at verse 10 again real quick. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, 
but the Lord will take me in. Well, most scholars agree that this is simply poetic language that David's using, that this wasn't an actual occurrence that Jesse, his father, had forsaken David. But David is using this hypothetically as a picture to convey how faithful God is as a father compared to those who we trust most, our earthly parents. So it really should be read as, if my father and mother forsake me, then the Lord will still take me in. For you parents out there, you know that fun game your kids like to play when they all come in all at the same time and you're like, what is about to happen? And they say, hey, uh, mom, dad, who's your favorite kid out of, out of all of us? Like, which one do you love the most? <laughs> you know, you could tell us. We'll, we'll be okay with the answer. Just tell us. Who's your favorite? Well, David's happy to play that game here, and this is what he's doing. He's saying, the Lord is my favorite parent. Hands down, the Lord is my favorite father. Because there is no parent that can match what the Lord can offer. And, and this is so cool. We see the Lord speak of this very thing in Isaiah 49. This is the Lord speaking. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget Yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. So when we understand the Lord's faithfulness, the perfect love of a father that will not abandon his children, this then makes a lot of sense of what David is conveying. So again, David is praying all of this because he knows this about God's character. He knows his Lord well, and he trusts in what he knows. So it's a, it's a hard but fair question for us to, to ponder this morning, church, that are you confident in the Lord so much that you want nothing more or nothing less? Are you fully satisfied in what you have with the Lord today? Are you in a place with the Lord that you can lose that which is most precious to you here on earth? A spouse, you can lose your parents, you can be forsaken by these people but still be at peace because you have the Lord. And I get sometimes we don't know what the answer to this question is until it actually happens, right? And it reveals where we're actually placing our hope in the most. But if you find yourself in a place where you can't find hope and confidence in God, then I exhort you to dive into his word, pray his word, take him at his word. He is faithful. He can be trusted. And see, praying God's word back to him is a wonderful display of trust, respect, and confidence that you believe that what God says is true. We see the Israelites pray God's word back to him in the Old Testament. We see the disciples in the New Testament praying God's words back to him. And we see Jesus himself praying God's very words. So church, this means we should be doing the same. Practice this this week. It, it opens up prayer in so many different ways. It's amazing. Just open the Bible and pray through the Bible. Or perhaps you have lost confidence in prayer and you don't feel like God is listening when you pray, then I hope you find confidence here in our last point. Point four, a confident Christian knows what they wait for. A confident Christian knows what they wait for. You know, oftentimes when we get frustrated with prayer, or when we're in the thick of adversity, it's because we don't feel like God is there, right? We don't feel like he's listening to us. We don't see our situations changing. And as you know, the Lord can sometimes take years. He can take a very long time to answer prayers or get us through tough situations. But
But even if so, we should know enough about the Lord's character that he is faithful. He can be trusted. And that means that we should confidently wait. Church, we should have patience with the Lord. In verses 13 through 14, David concludes with the same courageous confidence that he used starting in the psalm, in the, in the beginning of our psalm. Verses 13. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Or recently a dear elderly woman who's close to me received the news that, you know, we all kind of expect to hear at some point in our life that she has cancer. And this woman's in her late 80s and had already lost her husband a while back to cancer. And so, you know, it was shocking to her, but um, she decided she didn't want to do any treatments. She was just going to let it go. And this, this elderly woman is, is um, very encouraging because she never stops talking about wanting to be with Jesus. Ever. I mean, a day doesn't go by where she's not saying, I cannot wait to see Jesus. Well, at the time of her diagnosis, the doctor suspected that this could be the beginning of the end for her and that this cancer could spread quickly and, you know, to expect to see your body start to degenerate. So uh, she went home and we're all kind of like waiting to see what would happen month, month over month. And uh, the next follow-up was about a year later, I believe, to track and see how things were progressing. Well, when she had her follow-up appointment, it turns out it wasn't as ominous as the doctor first suspected. I mean, th there was actually very little change. And we were excited because that meant she's going to be with us for a few more years. Well, tears welled up in her eyes after receiving this news. And they weren't tears of joy, as you would expect. She was sad. She was disappointed that this cancer was not progressing. She was lo so looking forward to seeing Jesus in the land of the living and just leaving this land of death and decay. What a beautiful picture of confidence in knowing your Lord and knowing what you wait for. Well, this is what David expresses at the closing of the psalm in the midst of the hardship and adversity that he faces. See, he believes, he knows he will ultimately dwell with the Lord in the land of the living. So while he's here, he walks in courageous confidence as he patiently waits, temporarily living in the land of darkness and evil. One commentator writes, waiting on the Lord involves the confident expectation of a positive result in which we place a great hope. This expectation is based on knowledge of and trust in God. Those who do not know the Lord will not wait on him. Neither will those who fail to trust him. We must be confident of who God is and what he is capable of doing. We must be confident of who God is and what he is capable of doing. Church, can you say this about yourself this morning? Do you have a crystal clear image of who he says he is in the scriptures? Or is he a pixelated, confusing mess in your mind? Do you know what awaits you, and is it worth waiting for? See, the cross that Jesus died on on our behalf, the empty tomb, that has already taken place. This is something that we can easily take great confidence in to know it's already happened. He's done his part, and now we can patiently wait.
the Lord lives. He's conquered and defeated death. And what is he doing right now as I'm (laughs) preaching these very words? He's preparing a place for us. It's no secret that here on earth, this place that we currently dwell is not the land of the living. This is not your home. We know this. It's riddled with death, sorrow, pain, sickness. But by the grace of God, this is not our final destination. And David knew this. So if you know Christ as your Lord this morning, then you're just merely passing through. And if you're here this morning, though, and you reject Christ, if, if he is who you are not placing great confidence in, then there is no hope for you. You should tremble as the life you now live will soon go by so fast and you will start to degrade as well. But you're not going to be heading to the land of the living after. You're going to be headed to eternal darkness where the Bible says there will be constant weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the worst thing of all, the Lord will not be there. But there is hope in Jesus. If you don't know him this morning, turn to him. He can be your light, your salvation, and your stronghold as you place great confidence in him. To you brothers and sisters here, if you take anything away from this sermon, don't take the curling illustration away with you. And I'm very sorry if I said it's stupid. Just know, take this away, if, if anything, that you can't have confidence in what you don't know. And you cannot expect to grow as a Christian if you never fully study your Bible or apply what you're learning to your life. Don't stop seeking God in his word, family. Don't just read your Bible, study it, apply it to your life. Let God's word dictate how you respond to adversity. Speak God's words back to him when you pray and stand firm and confident in the promises of Jesus. Christian confidence comes from knowing God. Uh, Do me a favor, turn your Bibles to John chapter 14. I'm going to end with this beautiful promise from Jesus as we head out. John 14, verses 1 through 7. Here Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Church, from now on, you have known him and you see him. Let this be your great confidence this week as you go out. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we just, um, we thank you for um, your faithfulness of everything that just is going through my mind so much of how 
impossible, it seems, because we've all been betrayed in, in this lifetime by somebody. And it, it doesn't make sense that there exists someone who is 100% trustworthy, but you are. And God, I pray that we would take our confidence in that, that we would see you as our, our light and our salvation and our stronghold. And God, that we would walk in great confidence in the land of darkness that we're in. And God, I pray specifically for the, for the elderly here, my brothers and sisters. Lord, would you be filling their hearts with joy, with, with hope, with excitement that they are soon to see you forever. God, we pray for your help in, in understanding your word. Lord, lastly, we, we need help in understanding it. And I just pray that we would be a church who is in your word, not for the sake of prideful gain to just know theology and to know things, but Lord, because we desperately want to know you as David did. Father, would you help us in these ways? And pray this in Jesus' name, amen.